comes from the book of Titus, as we continue our study in the book of Titus. And the last time I saw uh, Bill Combs, uh, which wasn't too terribly long ago, I think Winston and I went out to see him. We went together. They always take him a hamburger. Bill likes hamburgers. We always go to Waterburger and get him a Waterburger Jr. He's a dear man. Anyway, talking about this text that is so rich, um, as I'll read to you in just a moment. And, you know, as one who's writing a sermon and you look at this and you think, uh, do I take just this section of the text because it's so rich? Or do I take the whole thing and go over it more lightly? Uh, do I uh, wear the people out with much repetition? Uh, but anyway, uh, these are the things I struggled with. And as you hear this read, uh, you'll recognize the, the depth of the information, the depth of the, uh, uh, the theology that's taught in these few verses. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? From Titus chapter 2, we're going to read 11 through the end of the chapter. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Please pray for me uh, as I would preach this text for the Lord's presence in my own life and for um, unction of his spirit and for your own hearts. Let's pray. Almighty God, the Apostle Paul said, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels, that treasure being the gospel message. We pray that we would all treasure it. Pray, O God, that you would be with me as I proclaim this text this morning, that you would help me, O God, to remember the things I've studied and give me the presence of your spirit. I pray for your people. We would ask, O God, our Father, if any are here that are not converted, that you would grant salvation this morning. And for those, O Lord, who need encouragement, may they be encouraged by these great promises that are here in the text for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard someone say that God would never ask us to do something that we couldn't do? I've heard people say that before. But the simple fact of the matter is, it's not true. The standard that God gives to us, that Christ gives to us in his word, is contained in Matthew 5:48, which says this, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In the context of that is loving your enemies. That God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. There's a general kindness that God expresses to all people. Therefore, we are to be like God. Now, I heard someone who uh, was uh, a very prominent radio guy, and I heard him say this. Christianity that teaches you have to be perfect is not true Christianity. 
And he was in one denomination. He got out of it and went into another. I think this guy's a believer, but he simply does not understand the scriptures. You shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the goal. That's the bar God has set for us. You shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, the text this morning, uh, there is an anticipation that we can have that will help spur us on so far as being obedient, so far as being Christ-like, so far as living a life that is characterized by encouragement and boldness. As we look at this text this morning, we can see this, that anticipating the return of Christ is helpful since looking forward to that day gives to us strength to remain faithful to our calling. Looking forward to that day, anticipating that day, gives us strength and courage to real, as we realize this, the reality of the return of Christ and the end of all things as we know them and the beginning of a new order. Talk about a new world order. That's it. Three things as we look through this this morning. Anticipating the return of Christ requires patience. Anticipating the return of Christ requires confidence. And anticipating the return of Christ requires understanding. And the first thing, then, it requires a patience. The apostle has told Titus that those under his pastoral care are responsible for the way that they live their lives. Does God care how you live as a Christian? Indeed, he does care how you live as a Christian. Is God grieved when you sin? He is indeed grieved when you sin. Is he displeased when you sin? He is indeed displeased when you sin. Is he delighted in your obedience? He is indeed delighting in your obedience. God cares how we live. So the things that he mentions here is the verses that we looked at uh, last uh, two weeks ago, uh, that uh, we are to disavow and renounce certain things, reject out of hand, uh, to deny, to refuse. And the things that he mentions here uh, is to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldly passions as well. And these are things that the church in this age and the church in our age, responsibilities that we have to do. There are certain things as believers that we don't do. Because if we do those things, if we become worldly-minded, if we engage in things that are ungodly, we are basically living as pagans. We are basically living as non-believers. When God's word and God's law doesn't have anything to say to us, then it doesn't matter. And so here is a great burden put upon these people that they are to renounce certain things and to embrace other things. It takes work. It takes effort. Uh, being a believer uh, is not uh, like floating along a lazy river. It's like swimming against a current, a tide. Uh, it is, takes us a great effort. It takes boldness and uh, confidence and trust upon the Lord to do these things we are called to do. Uh, and you remember last time we looked at this, we talked about uh, worldly lust if people just think that sexual sins, but there's so many more than that. Uh, Galatians 5, 19 and 22, again, now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. These things don't bother us. I'm jealous. Yes, so what? I'm causing strife in the church. Yes, so what? I want my way. Well, according to it, uh, the apostle writes here, uh, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things which I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these are we consider lesser sins. God doesn't mind too much if I cause trouble. After all, He's on my side. 
the next one, Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. I did not read this two weeks ago. And now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else, is, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It accords with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I am now entrusted. So he names all of these things as well that are contrary to the gospel. So we have to be called away. I heard, I can't remember who it was. I was listening to it on the radio. Some preacher, I think he's dead now, but I can't remember his name. Anyway, he talked about this. We know that it's true. We don't have to teach people to be stingy. We don't have to teach people to learn how to get angry. We don't have to teach things that are wrong. We have to teach the opposite. We have to teach them how to share. We have to teach them how to be loving. We have to teach them how to be kind. We have to teach them how to be generous. And the repudiation that's talked about here, and I said this two weeks ago, is a definite act. It is something that we make as a decision to not be involved in things contrary to the law of God. We give them up. We turn away from them. And it involves a conscious effort of renouncing all ungodliness. And it goes on day by day, moment by moment, second by second, because we are daily tempted to sin against God. Daily, many times daily tempted to sin against God. And a lot of times we have attitudes that are absolutely horrible. And we don't repent. And we don't even see it so often. And we're in the bad, we have the bad habit of excusing things that really just are so much a part of us, we do not want to let them go. But here again it says, training us to renounce ungodliness, all things contrary to the gospel and worldly passions, and then to live self-controlled lives. So many things fall under that uh, idea of self-control. To be of sound mind, to be moderate, to live soberly uh, in the control of uh, temper, tongue, time, and temperament. We talked about that last week. And uprightness has to do with how we treat people. Do we care whether or not we hurt someone? Do we care whether or not uh, we uh, uh, take advantage of someone? Now, what does it say? Remember, the scripture says, consider others as more important than yourself. We are, as far as possible, to live at peace with all men. So far as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. And pursue peace and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's what we are called to do. That's Christ-centered living that we are called upon to do. And he notice he also says this in this present age. Why does Paul say in this present age? I don't know. It might be that these people are so focused on the age to come that they don't give little thought to the present age. It might be that they're so focused on the uh, glorification that is going to take place, they give little thought to personal piety here. I do not know the reason. What we do know is he tells them that they are to live day by day for the honor of Christ and God's glory. In this present age, he says this. In this present age, put these things off and put these things on. If you're going to be faithful to Christ, put these things off and put these things on. And it requires great work, you see. It requires great work. It requires great efforts. What 
are the means of grace in the life of the Christian. And do you take advantage of the means of grace? Well, certainly one is uh, worship. Attending them to worship, being faithful in worship, being prepared to worship when you get here. And preparing, preparation starts Sunday afternoon for the next Sunday or the Sunday evening. Prayer, saying no to some things, saying yes to other things. It requires Bible reading. It requires really and truly seeking after the Lord. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. And we must be willing to confess and own the things in our life that are wrong and admit it to God and admit it to ourselves. John Calvin said this, It is true that no one can fulfill all that God commands, far from it. And even though God guides us by his Holy Spirit, we are always hindered by our weaknesses. Nevertheless, we must make it our aim to submit to God in all things, at all times and in all things, since he who forbade it is our God and is our judge. So even though we cannot do some of the things God demands us to do, God orders us to do, God commands us to do, we are nonetheless to do them. Even though we won't be perfect, we don't take, we don't take any type of comfort in that. Well, to, 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 to err as human, to sin as human. Yeah, that's just the way I am. That's true, that's just the way you are. That's not what God wants you to be. He wants you to be obedient. The second thing is anticipating the return of Christ must be, uh, requires a confidence. As they put forth the effort to live a life pleasing to God, they do so as they anticipate the return of the Savior. And listen how he puts it here, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Paul calls it the blessed hope of the return of Jesus. It is a blessed hope. The word blessed here is the same one that Christ uses in the Beatitudes. Same word as he uses it throughout. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Um, the, Paul refers here to the Christ's return as blessed. And it means extremely blessed. You understand this, that we are going to be introduced to an age that we can't possibly imagine. At the return of Christ. Uh, there will be no sin. I'm going to get ahead of myself in my notes here. And there will be no death. All those things will be annihilated and done away with. So it is a blessed hope. It's blessed because of the certainty of it. It is surely going to take place. It is blessed because of the author of it. It is God and Christ who are behind it. It is blessed because of the object of it, and that is to end all sin and things connected to sin in the entirety of the cosmos. As Paul says in Romans, the creation groans. Not just here, but the sin has affected the entirety of the cosmos. Well, here uh, it is that all of those things will, uh, will no longer fall under the influence of sin. Nothing will. It's blessed because of the benefit of it. We shall not all sleep, he says, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. For that which is mortal must put on immortality. That which is perishable must put on the imperishable. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul says all this in 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So, the blessedness of it is the benefit of it. And the blessedness of it, because of its duration, it is for all time. For eternity. 
It is hard to imagine living forever. It's harder to imagine living forever without sin. And yet, that's where Paul is taking Titus. It's to say this, I understand it's difficult to live a life faithfully. It's not easy to be a Christian, hear the things you're not to do, hear the things you're supposed to do. And I know by nature you still have that remnant of sin, and by nature you're tempted to do these things that are forbidden. But keep in mind the end, the goal, which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the word hope here is the same word for faith. It is to anticipate with pleasure. Look forward to it. Children, probably one of the most wonderful days of the year is December 25th. More than likely. I know that for Johnny and myself, it was the greatest day of the year. December 25th. Christmas Day. We looked forward to it. We need to look forward to the return of Christ with anticipation of the reality of it. Just as we know that December 25th is right around the corner now, the return of Christ comes closer to us every moment that we live. It gets closer every single day. And again, it is a day that is to be anticipated with pleasure, not uncertainty. It's not a hope that we say like, I hope it doesn't rain Thanksgiving Day. But I don't know, and it did, you know, by the way, it did rain Thanksgiving Day. Hope it doesn't rain, I hope it snows Christmas Day here. I doubt it will, but I hope it does, but there's no certainty to it. That's not what it means here by this at all. It is a confidence. A confidence. Not wishful thinking. When he says here, we wait for the blessed hope, the certainty, the confidence of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the return of Jesus will be visible. There are some in the church who are called extreme preterists and believe that all of Scripture has been fulfilled concerning the return of Christ. The return in 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple, that was the return of Christ. But it's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. What Palmer Robertson believed was this. What Palmer Robertson taught us, we believe in successive fulfillment in each generation. Each generation, so that the coming of Christ is imminent. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. Uh, we don't know. But we do know this. It will be visible. Acts 1, 9 and 11. And we had said these things as they were looking on. He was lifted up. This is talking about Christ. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. There'll be no mystery about it. There'll be no uncertainty about it. There'll be no argument about it. Philippians 2, 9 and 11, Therefore God has exalted, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is talking about Christ, of course. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That has not happened. That has not happened at this point. I believe it does happen at the return of the Savior, and the return will be glorious. Glorious return. As glory will be revealed when Christ comes back again. When Jesus was born, there were few that were aware of the 
uniqueness of his birth. Very few. We read of some wise men that came from the east, and they, didn't, they never went to the barn or the cave or whatever Jesus was in. They didn't see Christ in the stable. He would have been about two years old. He was home. The wise men knew about it. We don't know how many there were. The shepherds knew about it. They were told by the angels that night of their birth, and so they went to Bethlehem to see. Of course, his parents knew. The angels in heaven knew. The demons in hell knew as well. Very few. It'll be different when he comes back again. For the entire world will be aware of the coming of our Savior into the world to bring an end to all things as they are in anticipation of the world that is to come, which will be changed instantaneous. Second Thessalonians, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So we are always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It will not be a mystery. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ and glorious indeed as we consider what's going to happen is recorded for us in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 21. Uh, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people And God himself would be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is what, if you're a Christian, you have to look forward to. That's why he talks about this glorious return and the glory that shall be ushered in at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing, then, is the anticipation of the return uh, requires proper understanding. He says here in this text, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are eight places, if you've taken my introductory class, then you know this, where God is called Theos in the New Testament, which translates God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can read it again in John 1, 18. John 20, 28, to remember when Thomas was not with the disciples, uh, the first uh, Sunday that he appeared with the disciples, and Thomas said, I'm not going to believe the dead do not come back. I'm not going to believe unless I put my hand in his side and my fingers in his hands. Unless I see the nail prints and see where the spear pierced him, I'm not going to believe. I can't believe it. You remember what happened? Christ appeared before them. The next week, Thomas was there. And Jesus offered it to him. Put your hand on my side. Put your fingers in my palm of my hands. If that's what it takes for you to believe. You remember what Thomas said? My king and my God. He wasn't taking the Lord's name in vain, as a lot of people do today, by saying that, my God. He was recognizing the deity 
of Christ, my King and my God. There are other places in the Scripture, Romans 9, 5, John 1, 14, uh, 1 Peter 1, 1, we're not going to look at those, Hebrews 1, 8, others, but here in the text, and it is essential if we are going to be Christian, that we embrace the doctrines of the divinity of Christ. That he was indeed God in the flesh, one person in two natures forever. If we reject this doctrine, that Jesus was indeed fully God and fully man, then we are not Christian. We are committing the heresy of uh, Arianism which did not believe that Jesus was indeed and in fact God in the flesh. It's a heresy that's taught and believed today by many. Some believe that he was the first created angel, but not God. And yet in the church councils, they were trying to determine the person and nature of Christ. You remember, uh, they said homoousios at the, uh, at the uh, council of Nicaea, which is of the same substance, equal in power and glory. And we understand the Trinity from two aspects, the ontological Trinity, as we study the Trinity from his being, its existence, the Father being fully God, the Son being fully God, the Holy Spirit being fully God, one God in three persons, and then the economy of the Trinity, where the Father chose a people, the Son agreed to die for those people, and the Holy Spirit to apply to the people that blood of Christ whereby they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to believe that he is indeed our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And consider when he was on the earth. Consider the things that he did. What are the things? Well, his birth itself, or at least it's not his birth, but his conception. He was born like any other baby. His conception was different. He was conceived by the power of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. As he grew and he began to teach, he performed things that only God can do. His first miracle at Canaan, the wedding, where he turned the water into wine. You remember when the men were in the storm and the wind was raging and the storm was tossing the boat about and the men were terrified and the Lord Jesus stood up and spoke and brought the wind to a calm and brought the sea to a calm. You remember what the disciples said, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him? He accepted worship and he forgave sins. You remember when he was talking to the man and he said to him, your sins are forgiven. And there were those sitting around saying, um, thinking to themselves, uh, what, uh, this guy's heresy. Who can forgive sins but God? Christ said, okay, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk. In order that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I tell you, take up your mat and walk and go home. That was evident. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. It means nothing. But when you tell a man to get up and walk who's crippled and paralyzed, it means something. So Christ was demonstrating he indeed had the power to forgive sins. He was God in the flesh. And we look forward to the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we first moved to St. Louis back in 1875, 
long time ago. Neither of us had lived up outside of Hattiesburg ever. This is a new experience, new city, far from the coast, the Mid-South, I like to call it. Melinda's mother, uh, grandmother, Myrtle Miller, and Claudia were coming to visit. Our apartment was right on the intersection of Big Ben and 270, 270's Beltway that goes around St. Louis. So uh, on the back of our apartment, we lived upstairs, was a fire escape. It had a big platform. You know, you walk out onto it, and it had rails around it. It was about six feet by five feet. Melinda sat out there for hours. Because when they came, we'd go up 270, take an exit, Doherty, uh, Doherty uh, Ferry Road, make a U-turn, come back, and then come up the exit to get on uh, Big Ben. But you could see it. And somebody came on. She sat there and sat there and sat there until she must have gotten tired of sitting. But she continued there looking for that car, that white LeBaron that was going to have her grandmother and her sister in it. She was anticipating confident it was going to happen. Didn't know when, but she knew it was going to take place. We should live with the same expectation of the return of Christ. We put it so far from us, the gospel doesn't really affect us that much. When you realize that Christ is indeed going to come back again, and that he is indeed going to bring peace and joy to the world, and that he is indeed going to judge the world, and that he is going to be the master of our life, We take it more seriously. We take the gospel more seriously. We take the words that uh, Paul writes to to Titus here more seriously, uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and to put off worldly passions and live self-controlled lives. Why? Well, because Christ is going to come back again and usher in a new age. And do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe that, you're not really a believer. If you don't believe that, the gospel doesn't really affect your life that much. When you do believe that, and you reflect upon that, as Paul calls Titus to do this, and to teach the people to do this, uh, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where we find the energy. That's where we find the strength of will. To keep on keeping on, to live for God's glory and to be willing to undergo even persecution if called upon to do so. Because we wait for the great appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Live expectantly as a believer. Live expectantly. Live in hope. As you know, he is going to come back. And that which is sown perishable will be raised imperishable and we will be with the Lord forever. Let's pray.